Yep. Good morning. Okay. Once more. Good morning. Thank you. I want to check you're awake because we're going to read from the Bible. This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. And we read from the Bible every Sunday because it tells us everything we need to know about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It also tells us about ourselves, that there are only two types of people, saved sinners and unsaved sinners. And it also tells us how to be saved and how to live. It contains absolute truth in a world where nothing is definite. And that is why it underpins how we function as a church and as individuals. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some on the windowsill, so grab one and feel free to take it home with you. When I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will gratefully respond, thanks be to God. <laughs> okay. Today's reading gives us a glimpse into an extraordinary event in the life of Jesus, God's son. So please try to picture for yourself going up a mountain as one of a group of four ordinary looking men. Isaiah tells us that Jesus was not handsome or physically attractive. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So this reading is all the more extraordinary. So, now after eight days, no, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. Matthew 17 says his face shone like the sun, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the clouds. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. Anyway, Father, thank you for this glimpse into your son. Thank you that though he was fully human, he was fully divine. And as Andrew comes and shares from your word, we pray your anointing would be upon him. And we pray that our ears would be open to hear what you have to say to us 
because you have said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So we ask it for your glory and in his precious name. Amen. I don't know why I said the book of Acts, um, the Gospel of Luke. And our passage this morning, as Barbara already mentioned, it, it's one of, it covers one of the most important events in the ministry and life of Jesus, uh, this thing called the transfiguration. And I'll explain what that means in a moment, although it's fairly self-explanatory. But I wonder how you would go about describing something that's indescribable. How do you, how do you describe something that you can't describe? What, what words do you use when you have no words? What if the thing that you're trying to describe has never been described before? I often think of uh, John, who was here with Jesus on this mountain, and he's uh, later on in his, his, his life, uh, when he's in his uh, late 80s, early 90s, he's an old man, and he's, he's given this vision of, of, of the end times, of things to come, and he has to describe things that no one's ever seen before, and, and there's no words for we hear here, that, or we see here, read here, that Peter, the apostle, has this problem as well. He has a, just a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, and he has to describe it. He has no words. Verse 33 tells us that he doesn't know what he's saying. And I'll just admit to you, before we even start, that this week, when I came to this text, I felt that same tension. I know this is a passage about the glory of Jesus, but how do you describe that to people? And so my prayer is that Jesus would just show up through the words, through his word, and then that we would all see him together. That's what we're aiming for, right? That we would see Jesus. How do you even begin to, to uh, respond to Jesus in his full glory, shining as bright as lightning, as bright as the sun, and talking to two dead guys on top of a mountain? How do you even begin to do that? Well, to begin, make sense uh, of the transfiguration, this is what this is called. Jesus' appearance has changed. He is, he is transfigured, his change appearance. Um, to make sense of it, we have to see it in its context, don't we? Uh, Luke is an historian, um, but he's also, I think, a master storyteller. And we've seen this all the way through. He, he's kind of letting events unfold just as they need to. He never jumps ahead in the plot. He never tries to over-explain. He just lets things happen. And, and the way he's been telling this and just letting things unfold is gradually revealing who Jesus is. You remember uh, way back, and uh, I say way back, it feels like way back, at the start of chapter 9, we've been in chapter 9 for quite a while now, um, Herod raises this question, who is this? Who is Jesus? And we're beginning to see who Jesus is because some are saying that he's John the Baptist, come back to life. Others are saying he's Elijah. And some people are just saying he's, he's, a, he's a prophet. And then by divine revelation, Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Christ of God. Spot on, Peter, you're, you're there, even if you don't yet know what it means. And then it's out of this recognition of who Jesus is that Jesus then invites his disciples into this calling, as, as Travis taught on last week, of, of denying themselves every day and taking up their cross and following in the way of Christ, and that is to walk in the way of suffering and rejection and persecution. This is the calling that all of us who, who claim to follow Jesus, who are in Christ, who are believers in him, who trust in his death and resurrection, this is the same calling that we all have. So here's a question that that we all have to reckon with. How do we do this? How do we take up our cross and how do we follow him? 
What's going to motivate us and sustain us to keep walking forward in the way of Jesus? Now, it might surprise you to know that as a boy, I wasn't the well-rounded, studious, hard-working figure that you see before you today. Uh, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to school. Like, I wasn't a bad Wayne, but I just didn't have a lot of time for it. Like, I talked and messed around. I wasn't doing anything really bad. I wasn't, like, you know, breaking windows or spray painting anything. I was just, like, messing about. I was just a messer, right? And my school reports always said the same thing. They always said, could do better if he applied himself. And I remember one, one time, one of my teachers said to my mom, that boy needs to get his head out of the clouds. Because <laughs> that was me, just happy-go-lucky, floating along. He needs to get his head out of the clouds. And this popped into my head this week, because in this passage, Peter, James, and John quite literally have their heads in a cloud. But for most of us today, I would say it's probably the other way around, isn't it? Most of the time, we're, we're, our heads are not in the clouds. We're so focused on things on earth. We're so focused on the things happening in our lives, things that rightly take up our time and need our consideration, whether it's friendships or marriages or raising children or caring for parents or our jobs, paying the bills. And sometimes it's things that are not so worthy of our attention, things that keep us occupied and entertained, TikTok, Instagram, sport, reality shows, fashion, whatever it may be. But the Bible tells us that if we are to walk in a manner of the, uh, if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received, namely to take up our cross daily and follow Him, if we are to follow in the way of our Lord, then we need to set our minds on things above, not things on earth. But the problem is that we get so distracted, and if you're like me, you get so tired and busy that our minds slip off the things above. And our eyes are usually just firmly thick, fixed on things on earth, right? And so here's what I want us, to, to, here's what I want us to, to, to tell us all this morning. That there is nothing more practical for the Christian life than a clear vision of the, of the glory of Jesus. There's nothing more useful, there's nothing more practical, nothing that we need more than a clear vision of the glory of Jesus. Because we get all in our heads and we come to church and we think, all right, I just want to hear three things I need to do this week to be a good Christian don't we? Tell me how to live well. Tell me how to do this. But there's nothing more practical than a clear vision of the glory of Jesus. It's a clear vision we need. It's a clear vision of the glory of Christ that will sustain us and motivate us and keep us moving forward. It's a clear vision of the glory of Jesus that, that, that we need to take up our cross and follow him. And it's a clear vision of the glory of Jesus that we're given in this passage. A clear vision of the glory of Jesus that has real impact on our lives. So here's what we learn from this passage. God's glory is revealed in Jesus, so see him, worship him, and listen to him. That's pretty simple, isn't it? God's glory in Jesus, so see him, worship him, and listen to him. Listen, we, we have always said in Village, and I think the very first time we gathered in this building, I said, I have nothing to offer you except Jesus, but in offering you Jesus, I offer you everything. Because in Jesus, we have everything. So particularly if you're discouraged in your faith this morning, or if you're carrying guilt over sin, if you're consumed by temptation, if you're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, or even if you're just weary or anxious or weighed down or distracted, what you need is a clear vision of the glory of Jesus. And that's our first lesson this morning. See him. The glory of God is revealing Jesus, so see him. 
Like we see uh, Jesus do a lot in his ministry, he goes off to pray. And as he often does, he brings with him his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. And, and as Jesus is praying on top of this mountain, um, something happens to him. The appearance of his face has changed and his clothes become dazzling white. In fact, the word used here for this dazzling white, you know what it means? It means he became like lightning. <laughs> Try to imagine that. I don't think we can. Literally as, as bright as a flash of lightning. Have you ever seen a more brilliant white than lightning? I don't think it exists in nature. It reminded me of that scene in Lord of the Rings when... Uh, uh, Aragorn and Gimli and uh, what do you call the blonde one? Legolas. He, uh, maybe he's not blonde in the book, he is in the film, but they, they come across Gandalf in the forest and they don't recognize him because he's been changed and he looks so different and his clothes are dazzling white and he's so bright that they have to shield their faces because they can't look directly at him. Jesus is completely transformed. And we've seen this before in the Bible, and Jewish readers would recognize this kind of scene straight away. You see, after Moses led the people out of Egypt, um, he, he took them to Mount Sinai, where God said, come to this mountain, I'm going to meet you on the mountain, and I'm going to give you the law for the people to live by. And so Moses goes up the mountain, and he meets with God, and when he comes down, his, his face is shining. He's got, he's got like a suntan, because he's been, with, he's been in the presence of God. He, there's something about the, the presence of God which shines and glows. And so we're meant to read this and instantly know that the glory of God is being revealed in Jesus. God, God's glory is, is pouring out of him. It's shining from him. This is Jesus, how he really is. You might remember the Christmas carol, the line that says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see." Healy incarnate deity. See, when, when God sent his son into the world to take on human form, the, the fullness of his glory was veiled. It, it was slightly hidden. Now, not in a bad way, not to disguise who he was, but it was so that when people approached Jesus, they wouldn't be destroyed. Anytime in the Old Testament, when, when any human being approached the glory of God on earth, God had to hide himself. He couldn't show all of his fullness. He could only show part of himself. People had to hide in a cave so he could pass by. Or, or the priests had to cleanse themselves completely so they could be in the Holy of Holies. Otherwise, his pure, brilliant holiness would have consumed whoever approached him. So Jesus, the Son of God in human form, hid his full glory and instead presents the glory of God in, in meekness and in an approachable way. But here, on the top of this mountain, in order to prepare them for the work that was to come after Jesus had died and resurrected and ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit had come, Jesus reveals his glory to Peter, James, and John. Now, this is a, this is a preview of Jesus' second coming. Jesus is going to come back again. And this time, he's not going to come as a, a humble carpenter's son. He's going to come as the warrior king of kings who will bring justice and judgment who will destroy evil forever. And Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of Jesus, how he really is, how he will one day be revealed, not just to three disciples, but to the whole world. And they got this glimpse of Jesus because they needed, or they got this glimpse of his glory because they needed his glory. You see, this happens just after Jesus told them to pick up their cross, inviting them into this life of sacrifice and suffering, 
self-denial. The same call that he gives us to. And, and as I was listening back to um, Travis preaching on this last Sunday, I was like asking myself, why on earth would anybody take an instrument of torture on themselves? <laughs> why would we willingly, why would we, Jesus says, hey, you want to come after me? You want to follow me? This is the cost. Why would we do this? Why would we willingly enter into a life of hardship and suffering and persecution and sacrifice? Look at these four little words in verse 32. I think we, I have the passage up on the screen. Verse 32, these four little words. Now, Peter and those who were with him, that's James and John, were heavy with sleep. Um, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. They saw his glory. Why do we take up our cross? We do it because of Jesus' glory. We do it because he's worth it. We take up our cross and follow him because of his glory. We see the glory of Jesus and we know that following him is our path to glory also. We, we, we see that his glory and we know that he is worth it. We see that he is supreme over all. Jesus is the very manifestation of God's glory. And listen, here's something incredible. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are daily taking up your cross and following him, if you are in Christ, you are going to see Jesus like this with your own eyes. We're going to see Jesus, not just for a little while on top of a mountain, we're going to see Jesus forever in all his glory, shining as bright as lightning. And he will be the most beautiful and enthralling thing you will have ever seen. 1 John 3, verse 2 says this, Beloved, uh, John's maybe my favorite uh, writer in the Bible because of the way he talks. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Okay, so there's, there's a, there's a what, what we are right now, looking around this room, as beautiful as you all are, there's more still to come. Hasn't yet happened. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. What? Because we shall see him as he is. Now John, who is on this mountain with Jesus and saw Jesus in all his glory, he tells us that we will we will be just like him. We will be like Jesus. This is the future that is ahead of us. That glory that is revealed in Jesus, we will be like him too. We will see his glory and we will be like him too. And when that day comes, we won't wonder if it was worth it to take up our cross. We won't, we won't wonder if it was worth it to, to, to live a, a faithfully as Christians in a world that rejects all of that. To, to hold to a biblical sexual ethic, to, to handle our money the way the Bible tells us to, to serve each other sacrificially, to be persecuted and oppressed and, and made fun of and rejected. We won't wonder at all, was it worth it? Because that eternal weight of glory will seem like nothing compared to this light momentary affliction. When that day comes... We won't wonder if it was worth it to take up our cross. We will see Jesus and we will know that it was worth it. And so, because we know who Jesus is, we can face suffering and persecution and opposition and sacrifice and temptation. We can take up our cross. We can face all these things that knowing, knowing that following Jesus is worth it because we saw his glory. We saw his glory. And I just want to encourage us to look at Jesus. Just do what they did. Behold him. See his glory. 
He's beautiful. He never fails. He never lets us down. He is majestic. And here's the crazy thing. He is ours. This glorious Jesus is ours. And why do we take our eyes off him? Isn't that kind of sad? You know? Why do we take our eyes off him? Now, interestingly, as Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, um, he's not alone. Moses and Elijah are there. Can you imagine the disciples like kind of falling asleep and then they kind of open their eyes and you're like, whoa, who are these guys? And they recognize them obviously as Moses and Elijah. Now, Moses and Elijah are there and they're talking with Jesus. And what do you think they would talk about? I'm sure they had a lot to catch up on. Haley reminded me this week that actually uh, Moses never made it into the promised land. So this was his first time inside the promised land. This is his first time in Israel. It's really cool. And surely he would have wanted to ask Jesus about that. Hey, Jesus, this is it. Show me around. Point things out. We're on top of the mountain. But that's not what they're talking about. In verse 31, we see that they are talking about his departure. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and, and spoke of his departure. Now that word is literally exodus. They are talking about the exodus of Jesus. Luke, the master storyteller, is showing us that Jesus is bringing a new and better exodus, a new and better deliverance. Now, throughout the history of the Old Testament people of God, the exodus has always been a picture, the picture of God's deliverance and salvation. That has been the standard up until this point. Now, think about this. The main thing that Moses is known for, like, we'll come to this in a second, but the reason why Peter wants to worship Moses and Elijah is because Moses and Elijah are, are right up there. Like they're, 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 when I was making notes in this passage, I just wrote big guys. They're the big guys, right? Jesus brought the big guns. And, and Moses is known for what? The Exodus. When you think of Moses, what do you think of? You think of the Red Sea. You think of escape out of Egypt. The biggest event in the entire history of the Old Testament people. And what does Moses want to talk about? Not his Exodus but the exodus of Jesus. Moses knows that his exodus was just pointing forward to something even better, an even greater and fuller exodus that Jesus would bring through his death and resurrection and ascension. All these things, escape from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillars of fire and cloud, the the bread from heaven, the water from a rock, none of this compares to the deliverance that Jesus is going to bring. And notice how Luke describes it. In verse 31, he says, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This exodus is going to happen at Jerusalem. And what happens when Jesus goes to Jerusalem? We know this from Easter, from Easter don't we? When he goes to Jerusalem, it's betrayal, it's, it's accusation, it's rejection, it's, it's torture, it's suffering, it's death. But Luke calls it an accomplishment. Moses is saying, Moses and Elijah are saying, Jesus, tell us about what you're going to accomplish. Through all of the suffering and rejection and torture and death, Jesus accomplishes our deliverance, our salvation. Moses led his people through the judgment of the Passover and then through the baptism in inverted commas of the Red Sea. But Jesus is better than this. His exodus is once and for all. Never again do we, do, do we need to be rescued. 
Never again do we need to be delivered. Jesus has accomplished once and for all our deliverance. And this is how we see the glory of Jesus. It's because Jesus has made a way out of slavery to sin that, that when we follow him, we will be delivered. You see, Jesus didn't just provide a Passover lamb. He became the Passover lamb. Moses didn't make it into the promised land, but Jesus did. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now rules and reigns. And not only that, he is there continually praying for us to make sure that we complete our journey there. And not only that, he is there preparing a place for us in the promised land so that we can share in his glory forever. Do you see him? Do you see Jesus? Look at him and let him encourage you. See the glory of Jesus and let him motivate you to keep going, to daily take up your cross, to press on, to finish the race. Because there is a warning in this passage as well. It's easy to laugh at the disciples, isn't it, for, you know, always falling asleep. Man, these three, sometimes I'm like, yeah, Jesus always picked them because he was close with them, because they were going to have very prominent roles in the foundation of the church. But then other times I read um, the Gospels and I'm like, he picked them because they needed it the most. The night in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the biggest event in the history of the earth, they're like falling asleep. Here at the Transfiguration, they're falling asleep. And it's easy to laugh at them. But the warning is that they almost missed the glory. They almost missed the glory of Jesus. And, and, and to see the glory of Jesus, we need to be intentional about looking at him, Right? And if we allow the distractions of our lives or even our own tiredness or weakness to take our focus off Jesus, there's a danger that we will miss his glory. Because if our eyes are not on him, how are we going to see him? So God's glory is revealed in Jesus. So, so let's see him. Let's witness his majesty as Peter then goes on to write in one of his letters later on. He says, we witnessed his majesty. Next, we see that God's glory is revealed in Jesus, so worship him. Let me read verses 32 to 33. It says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, <laughs> I wonder how they woke up. I'd love to, I mean, just like, whoa. <laughs> um, some easy to forget that they're real people. <laughs> when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. <laughs> And the two men who were with him. And as the men were par uh, parting from him, uh, Peter said to Jesus, it's like, don't leave, guys. I've got something planned here. Um, he says to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. Now, when Peter sees what is happening, he springs into action. He knows something is good is going on. And he wants to respond somehow, right? This is kind of like when Haley was in labor. This is like me. I know something amazing's happening. I want to be involved. I want to do something. I'm like, I don't really know what to do. And then you say silly things and do silly things. And I love that he says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, it's really good that we're here. <laughs> hey, lucky for you, Jesus, we're here. <laughs> like as if, as if Peter was going to make it all better. And he proposes building three tents. He wants to build three tabernacles. Now, he's not thinking about setting up a campsite and sitting around a campfire. Um, he's thinking of the Feast of Tabernacles. He, he, 
This was the feast that came just after Passover when the Israelites uh, would build booths or tents and they'd live in them for a week to, to remind themselves and remember them and worship God that how he had led them through the wilderness and also how his presence, God's presence, dwelt in the tabernacle. So, so Peter's desire to honor these great figures of Israel uh, is a good one. He actually wants to worship Yahweh. He wants to worship God. But his mistake was that he was placing Jesus in a position of just another great figure. Peter's thinking, wow, Jesus is here with Moses and Elijah, so this Jesus guy must be pretty good. See, Jesus is far more than just a great figure of Israel. He is the great figure of Israel. He is above them all. Moses was the great lawgiver of Israel. Elijah was the great prophet of Israel. And so the presence of Moses and, and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. The very things that Jesus had come to fulfill. And the point, this is the point we need to see. That Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Everything Moses did and every word that Elijah spoke were all pointed towards the one who would come and fulfill them all. Jesus isn't on a level with Moses and Elijah. He's infinitely further above them. Jesus is far above all the prophets of old. He is better than Abraham and Moses and David and Esther and Ruth. He is above all the disciples, the apostles, the saints. He is above all the popes and reformers and church fathers. He's greater than all the scholars and all the preachers. We could scar the furthest reaches of the universe over billions of light years and millions of years and we would not find anything or anyone who comes close to him. In fact, what we discover is that he's the one who created created all of it, and holds it all together in the word of his power. Church, there is nothing and no one like Jesus. I really believe that. And here's the thing. Man, I find it so easy to be like Peter here. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can relegate Jesus to just another important thing in our lives. I mean, he's up there, sure. Jesus is up there. We want to worship him. But he's just up there with maybe our family or our careers or our kids. Of course we want to honor Jesus and we want to worship him. But we worship him alongside our desire for comfort or security. Of course we love Jesus and we think he's great. But does he really take first priority in our lives? I wonder what things we put above Jesus. What are the things in, in, the li in our lives that we worship more than him even. Brothers and sisters, to see the glory of God revealed in Jesus means that we will worship him above all things. Right, you can forgive me one football story, one Manchester United story. I haven't done it in a while, so if you're playing Sermon Bingo, you can have this one. Um, in, in 2001, uh, Manchester United were uh, in the Champions League quarterfinal against Bayern Munich, and they were lining up for the match, as they always do, for the team photo. And as the photographer was about to take the picture, this guy called Carl Parr, who was a fan of the team, came onto the pitch in full kit and stood alongside the team as the 12th man, and his picture was taken alongside the team, right? And it was in all the papers. And then what's funny is that even Gary Neville, who was in the team, he, he even said to him, who are you? And this guy said, shh, you need to take the picture. He told him, like, be quiet because you're going to take the picture. And this guy is just a fan of a professional football team. 
but he was placed alongside the team. And this is what we do when we put other things alongside of Jesus. Karl Parr, I mean, you have to applaud him for his, his, his prank skills, right? That's, I mean, that's next level. But he couldn't play in that football match. He couldn't be a top-class defender. He couldn't score a winning goal. And none of the things that we give our devotion to alongside Jesus can do what Jesus can do. He's the one who created the universe. He's the one who gives life and sustains life. He is the beginning and the end. What else that we value in life can save our eternal souls from hell? What are you holding on to that can do that for you? What else would we be tempted to worship that can reconcile us to God? What else that we would place alongside Jesus or even above him can give us eternal life, eternal joy and unending belonging and satisfaction? What else can bring us through death into glory? Church, we need to put Jesus above everything else in our lives because the reality is that he is above everything else in our lives. And one day, everything else we worship and devote ourselves to will be gone and only he will remain. Isn't this what happened in the mountain? You see, at the end of the story, Jesus was found alone. We need to make Jesus our first priority, the greatest object of our affections. In our, our thoughts and our words and our actions, how we spend our time, our money, our emotions, we need to put Jesus above everything else. There is no one or nothing, past, present, future, or eternity, that can compare to Jesus. He alone deserves our worship. You know, for the Israelites, the tabernacle, <coughs> excuse me, was the, the place of the manifest presence of God. What does that mean? That means it was the place where God touched earth. It was the place where God would meet with his people. And Peter... <laughs> wants to build a tabernacle for Jesus. But you see, Jesus doesn't need a tabernacle because he is the tabernacle. Jesus is not just the new and better Exodus. He's not just the new and better Moses. He's not just the new and better Elijah. He is the new and better tabernacle. He is the manifest presence of the glory of God. Colossians 1.19 tells us that in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in it's in the tabernacle of Jesus Christ that God meets with us. It's in the tabernacle of Jesus that God made his presence known on earth. It's in the tabernacle of Jesus that we can come into the very presence of an infinitely holy God and not be consumed by his brilliant brilliance, but instead be welcomed in his love. This is Jesus. The glory of God is revealed in Jesus. So, so let's see him. And then let's worship him above everything else. Not alongside other things, but above everything else. We see him in his glory, worship him alone. And finally, the glory of God has been revealed in Jesus, so listen to him. The last two verses, there's th verse 34, or three verses, 34 to verse 36 says this. As he was saying these things, as Peter was saying this, I love how Peter's kind of talking nonsense and, uh, you know, very human efforts. And then God's like, hang on, Peter, I got this. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. 
A cloud comes and engulfs them, and the disciples are afraid. Of course they're afraid. They're standing on top of a mountain with a couple of dead guys, and Jesus is shining like the sun. And then this mysterious cloud comes and and engulfs them all. But the cloud represents the presence of God. Again, the Jewish readers would have been familiar with this kind of language, this image, because when God was establishing his covenant with the people of Israel, the presence of God came down and engulfed the mountain in a cloud. It was a cloud. We're meant to read this and recognize God is present here. And then God speaks. And this is what he says. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Only one of of two times, only two times in the gospels does God directly speak like this. First one is at the baptism of Jesus. Remember whenever John, not this John, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, uh, baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus comes out of the water, signifying that he is going to go through our judgment on our behalf, uh, the, the dove, the Holy Spirit appears, and a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And here he repeats a similar um, <coughs> sentiment, and he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Now listen to him. And firstly, he says, this is my son. Notice that it's singular. He doesn't say, Moses and Elijah, these are my sons. He says, this is my son. Peter wanted to build three tents, but God says, these three are not on the same level. This one, my son, he is the only one you need. You don't need Moses or Elijah anymore. And then God says, this is my son. And not only does this confirm that God is the one who's speaking, but he's saying, this one, Jesus, he's of me. He is of my essence. However good and Moses and Elijah are, this one is greater. Moses and Elijah are, 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 are servants of the king, but he is the son of the king. You wouldn't go to Buckingham Palace and walk in, if you're allowed to walk in, and, and treat the, the, the staff there the same way you would at, um, uh, Prince William. And then God says, my chosen one. See, God himself is confirming that Jesus, his own son, the one who is of himself, is his intentional people to lead his people out of slavery and into deliverance. So, What does this mean? What are we supposed to do with the one, the higher and better uh, than the law and the prophets, the very son of God, chosen by God to redeem his people? Well, luckily, God tells us what you do with him. He says, pay attention to him. Listen to him. Hear him. Now, Elijah may formerly have been the one who brought the word of God, but but now God says, listen to Jesus. Don't listen to Elijah anymore. Listen to him. He is the new and better Elijah. His voice is the only voice we need to listen to. There's no need for three tabernacles. There's only need for one voice. Also, you know what this means? It means that we have a direct command from God to listen to Jesus. And if we're not listening to Jesus... We're disobeying God. (laughs) Church, when we see the glory of Jesus revealed in, the glory of God revealed in Jesus, we will listen to him because how could we ignore him, right? We listen to people because of their position, don't we? That's how it works. We listen to people because of their importance or because of who they are. During the COVID pandemic, we listened to the, the, the scientist guy on the TV because he was in that position. 
If the prime minister or president speaks, people listen. When a favorite influencer puts a new video on TikTok, their followers pay attention. It's the position of people that give their voice and importance. And Jesus is the eternal God, the very glory of God made manifest, far above anything or anyone. And so it's because of who he is that we should listen to him. We must listen to him because he is greater than anyone who has ever lived. We must listen to him because he is the eternal son of God. He is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. We must listen to him because he fulfills the law and the prophets. And we must listen to him because he is God's own son and he is God's chosen one. It's precisely because his glory has been revealed that we must listen to him. But there's so many voices we listen to, aren't there? All kinds of things in our lives offer us hope, offer us belonging, offer us a better life, even offer us forgiveness and satisfaction. Politicians, leaders, gurus, influencers, most of our online lives are spent uh, absorbing the opinions of people telling us how to get a better life. But none of these voices can give us what the voice of Jesus gives us. Jesus says... (laughs) I am the way. He doesn't say, I am one way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And listen, without listening to the voice of Jesus, we'll lose our way. We will. Knowing Jesus and um, knowing who Jesus is and not listening to him is a bit like uh, having Google Maps on when you need directions and then just ignoring it. (laughs) You're going to lose your way. If you're not listening, how do we listen to Jesus? I already know the answer to that question. Man, you are such an idiot for believing that. They mock and sneer. The Bible needs to be a solid and constant feature in our lives. How can we interpret and interact with the world if, if we're not listening to Jesus? The fact of the matter is that we listen to Jesus because of who he is, but also because it's vital for us to listen to him. We need him. We would lose our way completely without listening to the voice of Jesus. And, and maybe you feel this way this morning. Maybe you feel like you've lost your way. Maybe you feel like the shine has come off your faith, that you can't make sense of the world, or that you're struggling how to handle a situation in your life, or, or you just can't navigate your way us. In fact, uh, Jesus calls us to do exactly. Listen to him. Open the word and spend time in it. Allow the Holy Spirit to open the ears of your soul so that you can clearly hear the voice of Jesus speak. Today on, on the Pentecost Sunday, we thank God that we've received the Holy Spirit. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to carry the voice of Jesus to us. Over and over again in Scripture, the, the Spirit is, is, is described like the breath of God. And, and I remember uh, maybe on my second day of seminary, one of my lecturers said this, and I was just like, wow, blown away by it. He said, just as uh, my words are being carried on my breath to your ears, so the Word of God is carried to our hearts on His breath, His Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does. Jesus is speaking Listen to him. In John 10, 27, 28, Jesus himself says, I love this. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they serve in those in need rather than snatch them out of my hand. 
Listen, if you are trusting in Jesus, you are his sheep and he is your shepherd. And you hear his voice and listen to this. He knows you. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? That Jesus who it shines like the sun, who is as bright as lightning, who will one day return in glory and power and authority. He knows you. And he doesn't lead you in the wrong way. He leads you to eternal life. You will never perish. Nothing will snatch you away from him. And so if you feel like you've lost your way, if you feel like, oh, I don't even know about this Jesus thing anymore, listen to him, hear his voice, because you will soon remember that in him, being blessed is not for you to lose your way. Because he has you, and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Church, our lives will be infinitely better if we prioritize the, the voice of Jesus. If we take more of his words in than anyone else's. And then, as we come to the end of the scene, when God has finished speaking, the cloud lifts and, and we see that, that Elijah and Moses were gone and Jesus is found alone. Now, this is not a disappointment. Jesus is all we need. Now, I said at the beginning, there's nothing more practical for the Christian life than a clear vision of the glory of Jesus. And here's why. I'll finish with this story. Uh, towards the, at the end of, of World War II, um, a man called Murdo MacDonald. If you've never heard of Murdo MacDonald, look him up. He was a preacher, Scottish man, warrior. I mean, very interesting dude. And he spoke to some American prisoners of war through the barbed wire fence and he actually had to speak in Gaelic because English was banned so they couldn't share secrets and they were in this prisoner of war camp um, and, and he told them the news that the war was over Germany was defeated the allies had won now it would still be three more days before the German soldiers who, who ran that camp knew this and were told to stand down during those days, the American soldiers were, they were still prisoners. They still suffered the, the, the beatings and the mistreatment and the poor food and the confinement and all the other hardships of being prisoners of war. Uh, nothing had changed for them yet except the news that the war was over. And the news didn't change the conditions the prisoners lived in, right? But speaking, right? Speaking God's teaching. It has the with the news of victory, they lived not in despair but in hope. Their enemy was defeated. Victory had already happened so they could endure the trials because they knew they were on the winning side. And listen, we have seen the glory of Jesus. We know that he's not dead, but he's alive. We know that one day he will come again. He will come in full glory, shining like lightning, as bright as the sun, clothed and robed of white, destroying our enemies forever. This is who Jesus is, and one day we will see him like that. And so having this clear vision of his glory may not comes from loving God and walking in his way. This is how we live in those circumstances, right? Having this clear vision of his glory means that we can take up our cross daily and follow him. So let me encourage us as we see the glory of Jesus to see him, witness his majesty, to worship him. And just listen to his voice. Just as the band come up, I'm going to pray for us. But before we do that, I'm just going to, uh, as they come up, I'm going to just take, let, just take a few seconds before we come to this table, before we pray, just to reflect on his majesty and his glory.
And none of the words I've said can do justice to him. Find ourselves dissatisfied with us. Let's take a few seconds in silence and quietness. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not stayed silent. Thank you that you have spoken to us and continue to speak to us through your word. Lord Jesus, we're sorry that we take our eyes off you almost all of us. When we take, the truth is that we can't, we don't even have the strength to look at you on our own. We need you to keep turning our eyes back to you. Lord Jesus, keep revealing your glory to us. Keep this clear vision of who you are front and center in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. Lord, may we just throw away everything compared to you and, and run after you and, and put you above everything else and worship you and listen to you. Lord Jesus, do this in your church through your Holy Spirit, who we're so thankful for, working in our hearts. Lord, we know that it may feel like we're still in the prisoner of war camp, but we know that the victory has been. Streams of water that yields fruit in its season, its leaf does not weather. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, in a hot climate, like in the Middle East, um, which is the context of this being written, the only trees that produce fruit are the ones that have deep roots with a good water supply, right? And the way of blessing is to put our roots deep down into God.